shifting leadership, shifting trust, shifting funding, shifting impact, shifting engagement, shifting communities. Welcome to season four of Beyond Philanthropy, shifting power. Hello, and welcome back to Beyond Philanthropy. I am Valerie. I'm here with Monique. Hello. And we've got a guest today, and this guest is someone that we met when we were in New Orleans, and she was part of a panel, and she was the only panelist that we were listening to by the end of the presentation. And texting about, like, we've got to get her on the podcast. <laughs> Sitting at different uh, tables, texting each other. We got to get her on the podcast. Especially because one of the things we wanted to talk about going into the season was being at the intersection. So before we introduce the guest, I'm going to have Monique just talk a little bit more about what at the intersection means to us and why we wanted to kind of delve into this topic and then why our, our guest ended up being the perfect person to talk about it. So Monique, take it away. So when we were thinking about the theme at the intersection came up, and as you guys know, we settled on shifting power because that's what it all comes to, shifting the balance of power around different solutions, issues, structures. And the idea with at the intersection is to think about those diagrams. You do like the three bubbles and in the middle, that's the intersection of all your passions, your solutions, whatever. When we think about the social problems that we're facing, we think about them almost in a silo, tackling education just around education and not thinking about poverty and not thinking about housing, not thinking about workforce. When we think about workforce, we're thinking about training, but not education and all those things. And that is part of our issue. So we thought that at the intersection, at the intersection of our solutions, at the intersection of our issues is where we needed to have at least a conversation and have one with someone that we know is working at the intersection. Yes. So that brings us to Andranika Morris, who is with Housing Louisiana and um, really, really, really impressed us. So I actually work for an organization that does Housing First. So as you were talking about Housing First and how you're doing that in Louisiana, I was sold immediately uh, because it really is a model that is at the intersection of several needs. So I'm not going to introduce you. I'm going to let you introduce yourself because I want you to brag on yourself a little bit before we delve into this topic. So tell us who you are and what you do. Good day. It's great to be here. Thank y'all for having me. It was uh, mm -hmm. a, a pleasure to hear um, that you know, the message that we delivered uh, resonated with y'all because that's always what we're trying to do. So I'm Andranika Morris. I'm the president of Housing Louisiana. I'm also uh, the executive director of Housing NOLA and the president of the Greater New Orleans Housing Alliance. And together we call those three organizations the Put Housing First Triad, mm -hmm. uh, working to uh, end housing insecurity, first in New Orleans, in the metro area, and then eventually across the state. We're also working in other communities to help them stand up the Put Housing First model, uh, which means exactly, uh, as, as Monique said, Valerie, Valerie also echoed um, this intersectional uh, component. We know we can prove housing is at the root of so many of our, almost all of our structural and systemic problems going back to the founding of this country right so uh because in order to be a fully realized citizen in this country you not, not only were only had to be a white male you had to be a white man who owned property and since the founding of this country we have spent 
um, time keeping housing, keeping property away from um, people of color. What we have done to the indigenous has been, you know, rooted in uh, marginalizing their communities, taking their land away from them. Women not being able to own property and, and also the idea of uh, human beings being property. And all of that is, has, has manifested itself that housing is the big marker inside of that that just pops up. And it's the one that we don't talk about. It's the one that we don't deal with, right? As uh, we've talked about, you know, the rights of women, getting the right to vote, the, you know, ending slavery, um, we, we're still not doing right by the indigenous, uh, again, still, still struggling there. Um, but also but what you see is the housing pieces are the places where, okay, we're going to keep you in a box, right? We're going to, we're going to let you vote, but we're going to make sure that you're, that you're segregated and that your housing is substandard. And then if we let you participate in the political process, your housing is, you can't buy a house. You can't build wealth, right? We're going we're gonna to give whites the opportunity to build massive wealth by letting them buy homes and you not, and on and on and on. And, and how it is today where the, the rights of renters are just discarded and dismissed. People are seen almost as commodities because, again, you don't own your home, whereas but you're contributing. A home becomes generational wealth. It's, in, it's in, an investment property it is going to be rented to someone else. Someone else will have to live in it for it to realize its full value. And then we see home ownership being taken away and stripped away from people of color, made harder, um, and the, the system pushes back on them and saying, well, you can't have what white people have. You got to go back to the second tier citizenship of being a renter. And wait, wait a minute, why are renters second tier citizens? Right. You, we've, we're accepting this yeah. caste system um, and thinking we just got to move on up, right? As opposed to, no, we need to guarantee housing for all. And nowhere is that even more in how we treat the, the unhoused, right? This relatively recent phenomenon in this country's history of, of, of people um, being severely unhoused, which is the ultimate expression of the failure of the, the housing market, the real estate market to meet the basic needs of everyone, that it doesn't work on supply and demand, that these are not market forces, especially when you, are, you have communities that have plenty of room. So why aren't you housing those people? And, and we tell ourselves, I mean, again, when you talk to people, the visceral reaction, sometimes it's pity. Most of the time it's fear instead of prompting action. I've got a crap on them. And, and blame them because if I ignore the systemic barriers, that means it won't happen to me. Mm -hmm. And so you see all of this, you see people who are the most progressive, you know, on climate change and on um, reforming the criminal justice system. And they talk about building affordable housing in the neighbors, neighborhood and they turn into Klan members, right? <laughs> and, and, and so they, they're like, wait, wait, what are you talking about? We, we need to make sure this is happening and this is happening and, and, and on and so forth. And it kind of really reveals how, um, how they're missing those pieces. And so they're not getting to the issues that they claim to care about. They may be uh, education experts and they're not fighting to make sure that their students, the, uh, the, the students that they are fighting for have, have safe, decent homes to live, to, to nourish them so that they can be prepared for school. Um, and they, they, because they're just going, well, all homeowners, I, I need vouchers or I'm a homeowner 
and I've contributed to the system and my kids should be able to walk to school so that I can't have these homeless people nearby. I can't have this public housing nearby because that's going to affect my property values and it's going to ruin my school. And you're like, what are you talking about? Right. It's so, that not in my backyard. Yeah. NIMBYism. Yeah. Yeah. Not in my backyard. NIMBYism, NIMBYism, it, it, housing kind of reveals all of that. And so it also reveals that you're not all in on your issue, the issue that you claim to care about. You have a huge blind spot. And that is why we can't address education. We can't address health care. We can't address criminal justice reform. We're struggling voting rights, right? Again, you know, we want to re- reenfranchise people. They need addresses. Yeah. You know, uh, the right to vote is there are only two people you can vote for that is not determined by where you live, mm-hmm. the president and the vice president. Everybody else you get to vote for is dependent upon your address. Right. So how do and we- And those are the people who are actually those? making the impact and the policies that impact where you live. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Those are the people who are the most important. And those people often don't care about housing at all. They've told you, you You've allowed them to ignore it. You've allowed them to to use it to scare you. And we get that in New Orleans. We're not all the way there, but trust me, there's still too many people here who the NIMBY nonsense and that visceral hate is still, you know, it's it's respectability politics. It's internalized white supremacy. It's factual white supremacy. That's, that's on out in the open. But we're having the conversations more frequently because, you know, because where we live. With climate change, intensified hurricanes, Hurricane Katrina, the last 18 years that we've been dealing with and everything inside of that, it's, the flags pop up much simpler. Much, much, the flags pop up much more obviously here in, in New Orleans, and it's, it, it hard, it's hard to ignore. And, and people try. Lord knows. People yeah. try. I mean, they're, they're trying everywhere. And I think that part of it is, I mean... I mean, even though there's like the climate naysayers, people see it and they see how it's impacting them. Mm -hmm. And I think because there's so many people who are othering, like, that's not me. That's not us. That's not my neighborhood. They're not really concerned about it. So when you think about or how you're working around that intersection, how do you tell that narrative around how it is an intersectional issue that impacts other things that impact you? But also, how are you trying to solve it and provide services and solutions at that intersection? Mm -hmm. So that's what we're doing. You hit it uh, dead on, Monique. That's what we're doing is we, number one, we spend a lot of time, we spent a lot of time studying housing, right? We understand this, you know, my my team and I, this is all we do every day. Um, We need to understand what's happening, understanding what people think, what people say, like, you know, um, perception is not necessarily reality, it's just perception. We need to understand what that attitude is. I hate, I hate that. that I, you know, I was working with some consultants. Yeah, they're like, perception is reality. No, it's not. That, that, that gives you an idea of how far away, like where, where you need to persuade mm-hmm. and how you need to influence and also how severely um, myopic that person is, right? If they think, if, if, if they're like, you know, this is um, uh, like, oh, my favorite misperception, everybody who's homeless is choosing to be homeless oh my god because there's yeah because there's all i mean that's a huge one like and i'm like and i and i hit people with that all the time what you talking about what you talking about and they're like well yeah they're choosing to be homeless 
based on what, right? And they're like, well, they could go to the shelter. What shelter? Uh, at what time? We know there's a shelter. How are they going to get at there? At what time? And, mm-hmm. and do you, where is the shelter? And are you sure you're shel- what, what shelter are you talking about? You think you pay for a shelter that meets their needs? Do you think? Um, and <laughs> their also, kids are allowed how, there. And, their dogs, their significant their partners, other. Like, yeah. Right, right. Oh, my favorite one. I, we, I had this conversation with one of our elected officials recently who has been mm-hmm. particularly heinous on this issue. Cause the, and they're also using it to other. They will use these uh, the unhoused and say to black working class and, and black middle middle class folks whose communities are experiencing uh, still struggling with disinvestment it's their fault that mm-hmm. you don't have what you need in your neighborhood mm, no i think you sir are more responsible for the the, the, the deficit than the unhoused person and and so talking to those folks and saying and, and this particular elected official said well you know, I talked to this guy, I talked to this person, and he didn't want to go to the shelter. That's not the same thing as choosing to be homeless. Right. And I said, so you've been to the shelter, right? He's like, yeah, because he, he's like, I would go, I would go to the shelter, but I was at position. I said, oh, how about this? Would you leave your mama there? Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah. well, no. no. He, he's, would you leave your children there? Mm-hmm. Well, no, he's someone's child. Why does he have to go? You're standing here saying what you would do, and and you and, and with all your chest puffed out, lying through your teeth. Um, but when <laughs> I asked you, would you leave your mama that you can't even you can't even fix your mouth to tell that lie to win this argument to justify mm-hmm. your hate because it's superficial uh, and it's easy, and so we spend a lot of time. We have to know what we're talking about, right? We have to understand what's going on with these systems, how they are perceived, how they're actually working. And then when we talk to the intersectional partners, um, we've, we've spent a lot of the last, um, last years talking about what solutions look like, what real solutions look like, and how they would, and you have to, you have to be able to quantify that. A lot of this is qualitative, obviously. We're talking about systemic inequity, right? We're talking about, um, breaking down being an anti-racist and some of that is qualitative but the way you know that systemic bias is a thing is you look at the numbers and so the way you know that housing is victimized by this is you look at the numbers and the numbers also show us the path forward to let us know if we're at the solution of the path we're on is actually real And, and so you can go to climate change partners, you can go to criminal justice partners, you, and we can say, this is how the failure to address housing is interrupting your success. You know, so for example, you, you wanna go to a community that's been plagued by environmental racism, petrochemical plants, that's something that happens here in Louisiana a lot, particularly where I'm from. I work in New Orleans, I'm from um, a, a, a small set of communities uh, upriver that's in the metro area, that's, Call the, we call it the River Parishes, but people call it Cancer Alley. And, uh, and saying that where they're all per capita, there's a, we actually uh, have some of the most, uh, have the most tax exempt property in the country, business property in the country. <laughs> we have more tax exempt petrochemical company, companies, a property being used in my home parish of St. John the Baptist than the entire state of Texas. And, and so- Wait, 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 so wait, got wait, all wait, of wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Okay, so, I mean, this is not a climate change environmental conversation, but, like, they're tax-exempt and they're causing harm with no 
support or no like benefit. dollars back into the community? Is that what you're saying? That's right. That's right. That's right. These are the par- the river parishes also have a people have been trying to call a plantation country because they're funny. Um, so these are um, the the large areas where um, the some of the biggest plantations were. Um, the folks who live there, my family in particular, are the descendants of 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 of, of the enslaved folks who were freed. My uh, father grew up in, so this is very real for me. My father spent most of his uh, his youth uh, living on a street called Care's Quarter. It is the former slave quarters of the Care Plantation. That's where he grew up. You know, so this 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 is not distant for us. It, it is very real. And so the plantation economy, um, the all of the the things that that it needed in order to work, being on the river, proximity, and things like that. The petrochemical companies came in and said, "We like that. Let's let's move there." So you shifted from, and so that's why so many of the people in um, the river parishes are African American. Um, that's why it's such a, a source of envir- obvious environmental racism because it's like we're just going to drop all these plants here and and let them take advantage of this, and then we're going to give them tax breaks to incentivize them to keep, have them keep have them stay there. And then, uh, and, and this is, but and this is where when you get climate justice folks, and we, we no longer have climate justice folks like that. It's usually people from outside. Because uh, now this is very much a homegrown movement, but initially uh, the conversations were y'all are being the victims of environmental racism, and and they're somewhat blamed because so many of the people who live there work inside the petrochemical industry, right? Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who are like, you know, the petrochemical industry they don't pay that well. They only pay the average jobs are about like sixty thousand dollars a year, and I'm like, stop, flag on the play. So do you have any concept of money? <laughs> so $60,000 is good money in Louisiana. That's, 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 that's good, good that's money in, in a lot of places, especially when a lot of places don't even, I mean, we're oh. still at what, seven twenty five for minimum wage here. Like, yeah. yeah. And our right, poverty exactly. rates. At, and so are we. And, and, yeah. 23% exactly. poverty so rate for the, for the last like 20 years. Right. Yeah. No, like $60,000 <laughs> is a big deal to us. So going but, back to like the intersection. So you know, people are blaming the workers because they're like, well, you're causing the issue, but it's also Mm -hmm. like, but they have the jobs that are allowing us to not be in poverty and not have us to be homeless. So like you mentioned earlier about you've you've Mm -hmm. come up with some solutions. What are some of those solutions that take into account all of those different kinds of factors? Mm -hmm. So with, with an issue like that, so number one, let's have a real conversation about uh, addressing climate change and reducing carbon output uh, and uh, and addressing housing costs. So saying to this person who you ideally, one of the things that's going to happen if you get your idea and that plant goes poof, that person's going to be out of a job, right? That's a consequence of that. And instead of, uh, you know, vaguely talking about green economy jobs that you can go get that you can't actually articulate, let's talk about meeting their basic needs. Let's talk about the fact that their light bill is sky high, right? Because their home is not well insulated, not well, not energy efficient. Let's talk about the fact that that home produces a lot of carbon. And let's talk about the fact that that home has been, has been um, the, um, rolled over by disasters. Uh, their insurance is also sky high. And there's money coming to rebuild that home. 
They're nonprofits who want to help rebuild that home. So let's talk about putting that money into that home, making that home energy efficient, making that home resilient to the next storm, and reducing the carbon footprint and showing that homeowner, that land, that 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 landlord as well, so that renter can get that benefit too, of how this all benefits them, how decarbonization actually helps them, helps them, not the planet, them. So when you push to, you prioritize them, you prioritize their needs. So if you do get your way and they do lose their job, it's more likely that they can keep their home because their utility costs are low. Their, their, their home is healthier for them. They have, they have other reduced costs. And they have seen that you actually care about them getting to stay in their community. You're not just here uh, talking about what, how you want to save the world and how they really don't realize that they're victims. Uh, and so it is at its core, what we, are, what we preach when we say put housing first is like you have to address this, this fundamental inequity, this blind spot that we all have uh, and that these systems gloss over so many times mm. and, and say before you get to the really big stuff and no one's saying those plants don't need to go no one's saying because those, those people are dying mm -hmm. those folks they are on the front line but you you've also got to talk to them about meeting their immediate needs yes it's and, the and, immediate and, needs so they, and the long-term needs like so correct so intergenerational poverty is a big you know, leading cause of homelessness, houselessness, housing insecurity. So when you're coming up with solutions, if you're not addressing all of the other things through that have this person has inherited their intergenerational poverty, just giving them a home right. is still not going to solve the problem, right? Like, no, that's right. That's right. That's right. And that's part of when we say put housing first is that we're talking about the structure and the things that are necessary for you to maintain that home, right? Because right. again, we're talking about the, we can talk about the unhoused. You can talk about, because we talk about wraparound supportive services. Let's say, uh, particularly when you talk about public housing and housing subsidies, Section 8, public housing all have, again, the perception that these are, this is the welfare queen stereotype, right? These are um, women with children who are lofting around and not just making babies, all of these hateful gender stereotypes, racialized stereotypes. And, and so then what happens? And, and so you say, okay, that, I mean, that's part of the reason why some people don't even want their government's help when there is a climate crisis. Right. And they say, yeah. well, I don't want to be like those, those beggars. And you go, well, no, what happened was is that there's not wraparound services yes. to make sure that you deal with the, the housing trauma, the generational trauma, and help folks ma navigate that. And you, so everybody doesn't get a 2,400 square foot McMansion. Everybody doesn't mm -hmm. want that. Everybody doesn't need that. So you're talking about an equitable solution and, and giving them the things that they need to be successful. Mm -hmm. So that if someone's renting and they've got a voucher and they're renting, and, and, and the thing about it is one of the, the really interesting parts around this is that there's a way to get to a win-win Mm -hmm. That 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 so business owners, for example, uh, particularly large scale landlords, people who own apartment complexes, that they, they make more money when their units are occupied. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. And so if and when they get paid is, consistently. So when you have that and voucher they get paid consistently. Mm-hmm. That's right. But if that person is struggling with trauma mm-hmm. and I've had large scale landlords say to me, they they will accept the what they call a permanent supportive housing program vouchers and because they get that guaranteed income uh, and they have to, they're required to, like you got to do the both and you can't just expect mm-hmm. them to do it. They're, like you show them how math is going to work and then you require it. We're giving you other things. You're required to meet this need as well. And then, but there's one of the things that happens in, at, the, at the end of it is that there's a institutional um, blind spot. People don't fundamentally believe that these folks deserve yes and or and ultimately can manage it right mm-hmm. and so when it goes sideways it's kind of like well we tried and right. what's been interesting is the good property owners good landlords are the first one going no 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 not just not because they feel bad about that person some of them do but for, for the the big trigger is i got vacancy I got vacancies on units that you guaranteed me money on mm-hmm. and you need to fix this. And so it, it becomes this battle back and forth where they're blaming the person, but mm-hmm. the program didn't have everything that it needed. If I've had right. landlords say to me, Andronika, I refuse to evict this person because I was promised that this person would have a caseworker. And I know the caseworker never showed up when yep. this person was in crisis, there were challenges my property managers who are not equipped to deal with this were like, we called, the person never came, mm-hmm. the crisis got, got out of control. And they're saying, we're not evicting this person because they didn't get what they need, right? The, that's and, a good and landlord. So, and I it's not that. everybody. Yeah. More of that. That's, More not, of that. That's, not, that's not everybody. I'm not going to pretend it's everybody. <laughs> but it's some of them. But it is, it's some of them. And it's also... And like I said, part of the motivation was for them, the money, right? Yeah. They're like, the unit's vacant. And, they, and they're still saying, I'm because their, their point is, is they're like, also evicting this person isn't going to solve this problem because it's going to happen again because exactly. this isn't working. Exactly. And so there, there is a, there's a, there, that's a win-win like where you're talking about there, where you have someone advocating for something that is in their best interest that ultimately mm-hmm serves the needs of the other person so instead of trickle down you've got bubble up they're like yeah this person needs everything that they require to be successful so i can get my money not i can get my money and maybe this person gets what they need it's it's how you design it and so we've spent a lot of time talking about every housing system there is everything from first time home ownership to rentals um, to uh, you name it, every system has been examined on how you, um, how you, how you, how you manage it, how you layer mm-hmm. it, and every problem that that comes up. Um, we have looked at all of it, and we have also looked at it by those various intersections. So mm-hmm. every vulnerable population, be it um, you know a trans kid who got kicked out of their house, to a single mother with kids, and uh, people unhoused people with pets. Uh, mm-hmm. All of it. We, this is the solution, and mm-hmm. these are the steps. This is the policy that has to be put in place because ultimately, this has to be systemized. It can't yeah. rely on these one-offs, and so that's the piece, right? And so you say mm-hmm. to folks, "Help us build the system," and that's why our climate change partners, you know, are helping us with insurance, mm-hmm. right? Because they know that that's going to help it, uh, lowering insurance costs. 
means the homes have to be stronger, means the homes have to be, and we have to have the resources for that. Mm-hmm. And getting the funding from the, the federal programs, the IIJA and the IRA, and instead of doing what we typically do with those federal programs is trickle down, right? How do we invest in traditional infrastructure projects that we would trickle down? Oh, you're going to get a bunch of good jobs, and then you can... Um, pay for your own housing, except you can't because this piece is missing. The gaps in the financial markets, like again, the perceptions, right? You hear people talk about, well, when I was a young boy um, or young girl or just starting <laughs> out and I bought, you know, my mm-hmm. mom and daddy helped me mm-hmm. buy a double. And I'm like, it, and invariably, this is a white person we're talking about mm-hmm. here, was afforded generational wealth that black and brown people were expressly denied exactly denied and also like inflation is different like i hate today when they're like oh well you guys aren't working hard enough i'm like yeah your houses were like ten thousand dollars and now they're like a half a million for the same house yeah that's right inflation rates in terms of employment rates are not aligning so we've got all of these right. right like we've got all of these systemic issues and things that aren't aligning you know, you have this triad that you oversee together. How is that triad working together across all of these issues? But then also, how are you working with other departments, social mm-hmm. sectors? Like, how is it coming together to really produce a solution that uplifts the community at that intersection? We do a lot of research and we share that information. That is the, the big pieces. So we want people to understand how the systems are working, how they're not working, what the solutions are. And also we want to be in constant conversation. There are, when we have policy victories, we don't walk away and say, oh, we got this one. We monitor that situation and come back and say, oh, this isn't working. It needs to be tweaked. Uh, and so that we, we need community participating in that. We need partners participating right. in that. So we also organize. So that's at the core, right? And initially, we started with organizing organizations and nonprofits, civic leaders, people like that. And we're also organizing people, right, at, 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 on two different tracks, right? Because folks need to understand what's happening in their community, what they can do about it, what the specific issues are. We also do an electoral work. Um, one of the, the three organizations is a 501c3. And while we don't endorse, we do grade elected officials on their past performance and their commitment. And so we use, we're unapologetic about using, about advancing the put housing first uh, message. So politicians, elected officials get graded on whether or not they, how well they do or do not put housing first. So they get F, they get F a lot. And, and the C4 is saying, you shouldn't vote for people who are failing at this. You mm-hmm. should vote for people who are, are actually good at this. And that's part of the work. And so there's a lot of data analysis, sharing that information with people in, in, in different ways. We do campaigns around when it's time for a policy issue to it's bubbled up or there's an opportunity or we're trying to create an opportunity. And so Housing NOLA focuses on the city of New Orleans. That's where we've done the most uh, work around the plans, the policies, the recommendations. We've actually got an annual report card that comes out talking mm-hmm. about um, how all of the intersectional partners, policymakers who made commitments and said, I will do A. And then we go, yeah, you didn't do A. Not only the, the elected official who appointed you get a grade, you get a grade. We talk about this didn't happen. 
and this this and why it mattered and, and having these convers and continuing to have these conversations. And so we wanna first and foremost help every every community do something similar and follow that as a roadmap. It's a way of prioritizing. Community sets the priorities inside that 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 plan that housing NOLA plan and says, okay, we can't do everything at once, right? What has to go first? Mm-hmm. What needs to go second? And and again, coming back and saying this didn't happen or this did happen and this is how it impacted and this is what we need to do next and and being really uh, it, it's a it's a lot of detail. It's mm-hmm. and some and sometimes it's stuff that people don't care about, right? And so we're like, it still needs to be done. It still needs to be managed. We still need to engage around it. And so then the Greater New Orleans Housing Alliance is the C4. It's regional. And so that's going to be, we're expanding into the rest of the region. That's the metro area. And again, continuing to work with those elected officials. That's the lobbying arm. So Mm -hmm. it lobbies at city, state, city, parish, federal, state, state, federal level. And there's a lot of of that back and forth with that Mm -hmm. piece. So the New Orleans, the Metro New Orleans piece is is rock solid um, from a design perspective. Obviously, we've got a lot of work to do, yeah. but we're still doing it. Uh, what, the, across the state, what we want to see is that replicated. So there are eight other regions across the state. So Housing Louisiana is a regional network, mm-hmm. and it, so it's got eight other regions, nine regions in total, where we're looking to replicate what we've done in New Orleans. So we have organizers on the ground in each of those eight other regions. We have staff who are helping stand up homegrown regional housing alliances. So again, those, those, those twin paths, community being educated and supported and policymakers sitting at the table, talking about the data, talking about the research, talking about the policy. Um, and talking about what they can do and what they should be doing and setting priorities and and moving forward. So that's how we, and and obviously what we want to see is those intersectional issues. So you want Mm -hmm. criminal justice reform advocates, you want healthcare advocates, you want education advocates, you want um, civil civil society advocates. Mm -hmm. All of those people are recruited to come and participate uh, under the housing banner, right? Yeah. Bring so getting everybody to the table. To the housing banner. Yeah. Right. Getting everybody to the table. And so we, and yep. again, that's how real community change has got to be, bubble, it's got to bubble up. Yeah. It can't be top down. I think you're doing a really great job at pulling everybody to the table and like really helping folks yeah. get their voices heard. So I'm also curious. We at my organization have started doing a work first program. So similar to the way that housing first removes as many barriers as possible to someone having access to something, work first is removing as many barriers as possible. Uh, We're working a lot with people with opioid use disorders. So they're not the easiest population to work with when they first re-enter the workforce. They're you know, still early in recovery or maybe not ready for recovery yet. They still have some challenges just because they've been out of the workforce for so long. So having an employer who's understanding and willing to work with people and meet them where they're at and know that they have that wraparound support coming from somewhere else really helps 
you know, kind of what's your take on, you know, taking the model that you're doing and applying it to other areas? So housing, going to education, going to employment, um, you know, what what can right. other communities learn from what you're doing and how could that be applied elsewhere? So we, we don't, we're unapologetically about put housing first because we think everybody should start there. But we understand that people have other priorities. <laughs> and honestly, uh, work first doesn't ignore housing. I, I, I'm sure one of the things the population that you just described, they have to have somewhere to sleep at night, right? They, they have to, you know, and, and you're not waiting for them to get enough money to earn enough money in this job to pay first, last, yes. and a security deposit. Because yep. that's wackadoodle. So it, 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 it's also, you are also following our model expressly. It is, it is if, you, if you start with education, if you start with healthcare, it doesn't matter what you start with. You will run into the intersectional issues. What you can't do is ignore those in, intersectional issues because you've got a blind spot about them. If you're going, well, we're, we're housing first. And so this person who wants to work doesn't need to get a job. I mean, we don't think everybody has to have a job, but if this person wants to get a job Mm -hmm. uh, or they want to keep a job, right? We we continue to focus on the stereotypes, right? Um, On how transportation, for example, that's another one of our good intersectional issues, how transportation prevents people from getting from their homes to resources, right? And, And so you can be talking about bus passes. You can be talking about a bunch of different things. That also helps with, with the workforce model. How does that person get from their home to their job consistently? It may be that, yeah, the, the place that they can afford to live is a little far out. The bus route is that not, not really great. So mm-hmm. how does transit actually help that? You're going to look at that issue as well and close, help close that gap. And so that is, I don't have a problem with it. Like, yes, I would prefer everybody to be going around saying put housing first. But as long as if you're workforce, you are, in fact, intentional and committed to closing all of the gaps, you'll get to housing, you'll get to transportation, you'll get to systemic biases and microaggressions and racism and sexism inside of the workforce, workplace, and you'll also get to the wraparound supportive services that are necessary to address the trauma that Mm. the folks that we are the most who are the most vulnerable deal with every day. I like what you just said about the being intentional about closing the gap, because I think that there's, there's gaps again, that don't actually deal with housing direct. Uh, No, it does, but you're not thinking about it because you're only dealing with, let's get this person to a house. Yes. We're coming up on time, but I want to just, I want, I want to close with this last question, which is, how do organizations determine what those gaps are in order to create a, I'll say, first model? Like, what should we be looking at to say, this is an intersectional issue, Well, we've got to understand what those gaps are and those other things are so that we can actually get to a holistic solution? I think it's got to start with talking to the people who are actually the, the, the victims uh, and, and ours are actually the folks that you want to help also need to have good data, right? You need to be able to, there's qualitative, which is being respectful and equitable and engaging with community. 
Then there's quantitative. You've got to be able to back the numbers up and you've got to have a dialogue. One of the most complicated parts of our work, and it's one of the reasons why we move this way is, as I mentioned, so many people accept the biases and the inequities and help perpetuate the stereotypes around housing. So you've got to be able to have a conversation with someone who is struggling with the housing issue and still, but still saying, um, I, those people are trash and I'm not those people. And, so, and I'm like, boo-boo, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, good example. After one of the last most recent hurricanes here, we had a community that wasn't New Orleans that was directly impacted. My, my hometown was part of that as well. And you had a lot of people getting on the news saying, I don't want to do, I don't want to go to a hotel. I don't want any help. All I want is a sleeping bag and I can sleep in my land. Boo-boo, your house got destroyed. Your government should be helping you. So talking to that community member in, if you're not being intentional, if you're not being equitable, if you're not being straightforward with them, would be to indulge them. I have partners call me and say, Andrika, should we be doing stuff to get people sleeping sleeping bags? And they're, no, we need to get them hotels. We need to get them trailers. We need to get them housing. That's, what are you doing? You're leaning into the rugged individualism nonsense. You're talking about meeting them where they are. We want to meet people where we are, where they are, but we also want to help them up, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's (laughs) getting down in the dirt with people. it's, it's, It's called ruinous empathy. That's not what we're supposed to be doing, right? You, you need to be respectful. You, that's when we talk to the, I mean, that's what happens when you talk to the homeless and, and you come away from the conversation and saying, this person didn't want to go to the shelter. That must mean they want to be unhoused. Mm-hmm. No, no. Talk about were they traumatized in the shelter? Is it because they won't accept their pet? Is it because they feel like they're not going to ever get out of this cycle? Is the issue deeper than that? Mm-hmm. You don't dismiss it. And, 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 and it's one of the things that we do with these issues. And so, so that is, and, and the data helps you see that clearly. Yes, we and did. if you are intent. Yeah. Sorry, we did a focus group recently. We had like 20 participants in a room who are all part of the Housing First program. And we said, what do you most want people to understand about you? Like, what's the most important thing that you want people to understand about what you've been through? And the... Every single one of them said, I am not lazy. Everyone thinks I'm lazy. Everyone thinks I'm not willing to work. Everyone looks at me and thinks that it's my fault that I'm here because I didn't do enough. And it's it's so mind – like, they're right. They're absolutely right. Like, the general public is like, you are too right. lazy. You don't want to do the work. Yeah, you right. don't deserve to have a house. And that's, it's just not true. Like, they, they just – Got dealt a horrible no. hand, a no. horrible intergenerational hand <laughs> that like never gave them a chance. Can they help? Can they? Can they make? Can they make better choices? Sure, when they're actually afforded better choices. Exactly, but you're choosing from several terrible choices. Like, do I have this terrible choice or this terrible choice? The so, lesser of the um, evils. Exactly, like just the lesser of the evils. So, uh, we have we're hitting our time, and I love chatting. I want to keep chatting, but I also have to wrap us up. So, um, Andranika, you have been so amazing to talk to, um, especially, you know, going into the intersection of all of the different things that go into social services, human services, supporting your community. All of that is, it's not a single issue problem for anyone. Um, and, you know, being able to shift that power back to the community 
and help them to have a voice and have a say and be able to help drive the solutions for their own community is a massively important thing. And you're doing it so well for the community of New Orleans. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all for having having me. No, thank you. Thank you for not thinking we were crazy and for taking the time to speak with us then and for joining us now. This has been a tremendous help and insight to our listeners and to us. So thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode. If you didn't know, now you know, this has been Beyond Philanthropy.